and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of Imagine Publicity Wealth, uh, publicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And, yes, good morning indeed. It is our goal to make a difference uh, this Saturday and every Saturday. So I welcome everyone across the nation who is listening live and for those who want to uh, catch the show on the archives at a later point. And um want to let you know that we have a new, very innovative topic, a topic that I've, I've had in the back of my mind and want to address for quite a while, and we have a very um, knowledgeable and distinguished guest with us today, uh, Felix Nader, and we are going to be talking about his, his, his consultant um, group that specializes in this topic, but before I bring him on, want to say good morning, delightful Delilah, how are you? Hey, Donna, I'm fine, doing great. Um, it's, this is going to be a wonderful show for listeners to tune into because the information um, could could essentially save one's life down the road. So it's always good to have guests like this that can really be at the top of their field and give the information to our listeners so that you know they can take it back to where they work or take it back to their homes and get the information out there. Absolutely. And I think I'm not sure how many incidents you've had in your area in South Carolina, but as you may know, we've had many high-profile workplace violence incidents in Connecticut that has just rocked us, including state government where I work. And that never leaves you as a crime victim. And I'm interested in finding out how we as crime victims, as employees of these kinds of places, can can do better, even if HR does not. So with, without further ado, Felix Nader, now it's nature with a T, it's not with a D. Felix, good morning, and I want to say it's a pleasure to have you on our show. And you're not, you're not related to Ralph, right? No, I I have the better tan. <laughs> Although you know what, maybe it would be an interesting conversation to have Ralph Nader and you together. We'll have to think about that. <laughs> well, know? it's interesting. I think both he and I are, are out of the matrix. We're not within that confined yes. structure, so we would have a good time. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 Ralph, uh, to my knowledge, still lives in Connecticut. So we'll yes. have to see if we can connect you. But I just, you know, I just thought would, that would be a little. A little funny thing to say in the beginning here, but our, our topic is absolutely serious and mm-hmm. and um, it's something that I've wanted to do for quite some time. And this isn't something that you 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 um you know you did and you planned for years and years. I think it it came upon you as a particular need. So um, if you could, as we start out, if you could give us a little bit of background in terms of. You know, how did you start out in doing what you're doing presently? Okay, well, there's uh, an interesting history. I, I don't know um, if you ever heard it said before, but when I was a postal inspector with the New York Division, 
I was one of the uh, team members, uh, specialists that were responsible for the violence interdiction, if you would, the workplace violence piece of the Postal Service's uh, workplace security program. And uh, so we, we had a wonderful time in those eight years. I will admit in the beginning it was kind of difficult for me because it required me to uh, uh, use a whole lot of different skills that I'd never used before. But working with the employees, the organizations, the unions, they really helped frame my understanding and appreciation for the problem. Um, when I retired, I had no intentions of, of ever, ever getting involved in something called workplace violence simply because it really consumes you from a, 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 a human emotional perspective until September 11 came along and I was invited back to uh, the Postal Service to address uh, workplace safety and workplace security on Long Island, and that was in 2002. And Donna and Delilah have been doing it ever since uh, 2002. In fact, in my 13th year, uh, just constantly rebranding and transforming how I present, deliver, and consult with clients to make sure that they get a contrarian and a provocative approach that stirs their mindset into doing something proactively. Wow. Um, well, it, so it sounds like it it, it 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 grew from a project to actually, you know, very much a passion for you, right? Yes, yes, yes. And meeting some wonderful people, and Delilah and I go back with a mutual friend, Susan Milano Murphy, who was probably the premier in, in my regard. Right. And, and so we have a lot of history together. Sure, with uh, yes, yes, we yes, do. yes, yes. So um, anyway, it's nice that you're part of the Shattered Life family now, Thank and uh, so we'd like to. Uh, I I wanted to know. I know when in our previous discussions on the phone, wanted to um, to uh, ask about uh, is, is your company? I, I mean, I know it has many facets to it, but is your company designed to do active incident management or to change? HR and business culture, re workplace violence, or is there a number of different facets that you're focused on? What a wonderful question. Um, Nader Associates Thank Limited you. is a, you're welcome, Nader Associates <laughs> Limited is a uh, workplace security consulting firm that helps organizations implement and manage workplace security with a specialty in workplace violence prevention. I take a holistic approach to this stuff because you can't separate the components of it and have a an effective, comprehensive approach. So if training can help the organization sustain its objectives, its strategies, and its policies, I'm for it. If if training is just going to be a compliance requirement that to check the box, I'm not for it. It's got to be part of a collaborative, integrative effort that helps the organization move forward. I help those people in the organizations that want to listen to a different contrarian point of view, namely the folks in HR who really are responsible for this, they really want to do a good job, but unfortunately their focus isn't the misconduct and the misbehaving of our workers, and so therefore it maybe doesn't have the priority that I think it should have, and they tend to wrap their arms around it and, and let it sit on their desk, and before you know it, we have unfortunate situations. So I believe that we have to collaborate, dismantle the silos, HR, security, facilities, all the managers, and just make a horizontal link to how we better communicate this so that we are all collaborating together before an incident happens. Right. 
to be proactive versus addressing the crisis when it when it becomes acute. So, I mean, do you feel in looking at all of those um, aspects that you deal with that that really the kind of the um, the heart of the matter is to try whether it's a governmental agency or a corporate agency or a small business to to try to go in and and change the attitude and culture of HR. These are the people who are responsible. I, I think they need a partner. They need a partner who is genuinely and authentically on their side. I hear it said confidentially, uh, they don't want a bunch of cowboys. They, they don't want someone uh, like me, for example, who may come in and tell them what to do. So I partner with these folks to help them do what they want to do a little bit more better, so to speak, and more, a little more efficiently and less intimidating. I don't mandate. I don't tell them. I guide them. I mentor them. I coach them. And guess what? From the experiences that I've had, even with my current client situations, I think when you would ask them privately what they think of our assistance and support, they would invariably say, we love the way he leads, guides us. He doesn't tell us. So I think HR is, is operating under this premise that from their past experiences, they're hiring cowboys who are telling them what to do, when in fact they're hiring people that have expertise who might not be presenting it in a palatable, acceptable way that HR can enjoy receiving and then processing. So it's a, so it's a bit it, of communication. So it should be more collaborative is what you're saying. Is that absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, Donald, let, let me tell you something. What, what I see in all these, you talked about, do I also do active incident management? Of course I do. One of my clients in New Jersey, that's all he uses me for. We train their supervisors and managers in how to conduct workplace incident investigations. But when they get to a sticky point in the road, They'll invite me in to assess and evaluate the efficacy of their work. And let me tell you, there's no such thing as uh, being unaware of an incident that erupts tomorrow. There are indicators along the way that we Red fail flag. to notice, that we fail to pay attention to. We're too busy. We have a whole lot of distractors in the way, and nobody is paying attention to this stuff. So I don't want to hear when it comes to a workplace incident that we were caught by surprise. The only surprise you had was when the day the person decided to come in and exact their vengeance. But along the way, there are enough warning signs. Well, Felix, could you, you know, could you briefly just go down some of these red flags and warning signs? I mean, how, how would a business recognize that it has a potential violence problem? Or is it, is it a specific employee that they would be looking at, or is it just a culture? Um, what a mouthful. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a culture. <laughs> right. It's a culture. It's a specific employee. It's a specific uh, lackadaisical attitude towards supervision. It's a lack of awareness. It's misunderstanding. It's being educated by the misinformed who are informing the less informed people about what warning signs are. And let me say something, if I may, emphatically. Warning signs alone without understanding the stages, without understanding the associated behavior, are useless. And I'll give you an example. If you were to allow me to address a group of your, your, your employees, and I would begin by saying, ladies and gentlemen, these are the red flags, these are the warning signs, and I'm going to cite, recite a couple, and you tell me how many could possibly be you or someone you've known or someone in your family that's not violent. You're going to a bad divorce. You're experiencing financial situations. You have a family hardship. 
you have medical situations, you've been diagnosed with, with terminal cancer, you're having a domestic violence situation, you're having a family court dispute with your ex-spouse about visitation rights. Visitation rights have been denied. More money is coming out of your check for, you, you know, the litany of warning signs mm-hmm. that they identify without the associated behavior cannot identify aggressive, aggressive behavior. So you have to have what is aggressive behavior and what are the warning signs combined to really, really start being concerned about a, pencil, a person's potential. Right. Well, do they, um, in, in the litany of all these things, I'm sure there you know, may be a priority list, but are the people coming back to you and, and initially saying, well, we only have X amount of dollars we can contribute to this, and it's almost like, I think, and you know, and again, in working for government, they want everything to fit into a neat little package, Felix. Yeah. Well, if anybody has been paying attention, and I have because I'm not that smart, so I need as many people around me that are smarter than I am, look at OSHA over the last 20 years. Their message Uh has been consistent. Even though they may not have a lot of teeth to enforce the workplace violence prevention uh, clause of the duty to warn clause, they have been saying, all we want employers to do is to take reasonable steps to prevent or abate a recognized violence hazard or situation or person. All we want you to do is at least do something with the report, the observation, and we'll be happy. Because by doing something, it puts the workforce on notice that there's trust, confidence, and credibility in the reporting system and in the action of follow-through. But absent not doing anything, it means that you might be heading towards a a charge of negligence or malfeasance in failing to do your minimal responsibilities in providing for a safe and secure workplace. Mm. Well, leading leading up to those, where, I mean, can you kind of give us this, uh, a hypothetical scenario, or I'm sure you can, you know, sure. pull from a real scenario in that, um, you know, this, you know, maybe six months before, a year before, these are the events, and this was a recipe for disaster, and they weren't paying attention. Can you give us a typical scenario? Sure. I'll give you. I'll give you a. I'll, I'll protect the innocent. Won't mention any names. It's a current okay. client. A current client. Twenty yep. years ago. Twenty years ago, they hired a uh, a white employee and a black employee at the same time. Uh, along the way, because of, uh, of promotional opportunities, the white employee gets promoted ahead of the black employee. There is dissension in the ranks for 20 years. I got involved 20 years later because the two could no longer stand each other, and they got into a physical confrontation. During the ensuing assessment of the incident, I began asking all of the witnesses their version and interpretation of what transpired, and I put together this scenario that embarrassed my client to know that a person that they trusted and they elevated to a position of, 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 of authority could have been the brunt of such an unfair allegation all of these years, and nobody ever told senior management that there was strife within that part of the organization for whatever reason. Uh, for 20 is, years, nobody 20, recognized this? They recognized it, but they buried it. They buried uh-huh. it. The people responsible, the people close and intimate to the problem, did not want to elevate it as an issue because they felt that it would probably uh, direct bad light on all of them. So they internalized it. But what they didn't know was happening is the, the, the person who perceived the injustice, the African-American young man who perceived the injustice, he showed his disgruntledness towards other employees 
who felt that they were the victims of, of unfairness in, in his attack. He was angry that nobody was listening and looking at him as a competent, contributing member of the team because the individual that was hired above him to be the supervisor was the person that everybody listened to. Mm-hmm. And w- when they were when they first joined the company, were they kind of equivalent in skills and they felt like, well, just because it was the white person, we're going to promote them? Well, I don't know if it had anything to racial, but, you, you know, the connotation is always there. Right. Um, so we don't know if that was really a fact. I do know that, that the both of them um, harbored issues, one based on racial discrimination and the other based upon, hey, we hired you to do a job and you better do your job. So I don't know if the racial component was, was quite evident to me, but I know that there was strife that existed between them, one perception of racial, dis, you know, racial uh, discrimination, and another one, the perception of, no, you got a job, do your job, and you'll be okay with me. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't want to inject so what, anything so that I can prove. So what happened after the altercation? Well, it's an amazing. Uh, once senior management became aware of this, they were very aggressive. They did not particularly appreciate uh, being misinformed and, and kept uh, in the dark all these years. All of the managers were disciplined, and the both employees, because of my recommendations, since it was mitigating circumstances, both employees were not terminated, but they were suspended a considerable amount of time, and then they were returned to the workplace. And one of them has since retired, and the other one has since been fired because of the continuation of the ill will towards coworkers. Wow. Now, when just just from sort of a, a legal policy standpoint, if, if if people go to blows like this and and so and they do take the steps of suspension, I think in 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 this state because of uh, you know the the power of the unions, you have to be suspended with pay. Is that always the case? It all depends on what the uh, the local policies are, the local labor ra- labor relations uh, relationships are. And- and, and how those are come about, so they're, they're mm-hmm. not consistent. But yeah. um, generally, generally, when a union steward gets a complaint from an employee, by law, they've got to aggressively investigate and and uh, determine whether the facts, are, uh, whether they're facts or whether they're fantasy. Uh, if not, they can be uh, held civilly uh, responsible for failing to do their jobs. Oh, okay, I see. Well, is um, when when you you first start out with a company, uh, is it? I mean, is it about unless you're dealing with an acute situation? Is it? Uh, I know you do an assessment, but is it about prevention? Uh, your thrust versus you know dealing with here's how to prevent an active incident. I mean, does it depend upon the the client you have? Yes, yes. I I, I think the majority. No, let me back up, uh, Donna. Factually speaking, the majority only want training to deal and address a specific issue, and that is either required annual training or or a need to address uh, orientation as part of the workplace violence prevention policy or because they have to meet compliance. Rarely, rarely do I get invited in, and when I do, it's a pleasure working with these organizations, but really do I get an organization who recognizes from the bottom up that they have something in place that isn't working, or really do I get invited into an organization that has nothing in place and they want to get it going? It is a reaction to a problem 
by a lawyer who says you better get a hold of Mr. Nader who might be able to help you with this problem that invariably invites me in. It's never a proactive assessment of the current situation with the exception of my existing clients who through our coaching and mentoring recognize that perhaps we need to do a little bit more than why we initially hired you for or in the cases of the larger organizations who specifically bring me in to assess and evaluate where they are and then help them go further than where they currently are. But those are rare. Those are rare because many of them will use their internal resources, and I can't tell you how much I discourage the use of internal resources. All you're going to get is a regurgitation of what you've gotten from the Internet or what you said last year. And you mean like going over the policy manual? Is that what you mean by internal resources? It's, I don't have a problem with going over the, the policy manual, but I do have a problem when you're trying to train a workforce on, on situations that you may have not had any direct involvement in. You, you mm-hmm. have no credibility, and because right. you're, you're a trainer or an HR director, you think that gives you credibility to talk about a subject area just because you manage it? No, no. Invest in that external resource that works in it and on it every single day. Every single day I get a phone call. Every single day I get an email or a request or an invitation to help solve an issue. So I'm dealing with this stuff every single day. Um, so you're putting out fires versus the, the proactivity that you would like to see. It's, it's a problem because on the witness stand, you know, plaintiff attorney is going to say to the organization, let me see your workplace violence prevention policy and plan. Let me see what you've done in the area of training to support the policy or the plan. Let me see when it was the last time you trained the current employees that were the witnesses and victims to the current situation. And if you don't have the proper answers for these things, you, you look pretty, pretty embarrassed on the stand when you're trying to answer with a humana, 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 as, as opposed <laughs> to, you know, being proactive and, and saying we're on top of our game and this was an incident that we were unaware of and caught by surprise. I think. We can all understand when you're doing everything right and you're caught by surprise, but when you're doing nothing at all and you're just giving it a Band-Aid solution to the problem, that is not effective uh, workplace violence prevention. Sure. Um, You you know, I can think of um, uh, some disgruntled people um, in the workplace where I am and I've, I've tried to do certain things to to report through the proper channels, and typically they just, you know, send it off to HR, and in my opinion, HR doesn't do too much. I mean, what should a a regular employee do if they are seeing, and they're not in, um, if they're not in a supervisory capacity or a management capacity, and they they feel, feel vulnerable? In the best of all worlds, what should an employee do? Uh, an employee should document every encounter, every incident, every situation, should document the date, the time, the person involved, any any witnesses that may have been nearby, and put it somewhere so that when he or she decides to go forward, there's proof evidence that this thing transpired, and here's the record of it. I, I think when a supervisor gets a report, he has a moral and ethical obligation, not to mention a uh, fiduciary responsibility, if you would, to do something as urgently as possible with that employee's complaint, report, or observation. Failure to do anything less than that is the reason why HR 
finds itself between a rock and a hard place. The supervisor doesn't inform his manager. His manager is unaware of, and HR is caught by surprise. They can't defend the organization. They can't defend the victim. They can't do anything because the facts are short-sighted. There has not been an investigation into the preliminary report made by the employee, and it appears as though the employee victim is left out hanging because nobody is concerned about their welfare, when in fact properly training supervisors in how to manage the potentially hostile workplace is a deficiency that carries on today. That is the missing link. If we were to train our supervisors and managers in understanding what workplace violence is, the insidious nature of the continuum, by that I mean is is harassment, name-calling, verbal abuse, those little things that are nonviolent in, in, in behavior, they increase someone's stress factor to the point where one day they'll wake up on the wrong side of the bed, come into the workplace, and you say something to that person, and there might be a physical confrontation. And so mm-hmm. the insidious nature of this stuff needs to be managed by a supervisor who understands the impact to the individual and the adverse effect it has on the individual's performance, his attitude, her morale. And mm-hmm. once they understand this, then they can call themselves leaders. Right now they're just um, supervisors and managers of systems and projects, but they're not leading people. Right. Well, well do they? Do you think part of it might be that, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, that Excuse me. That um, they're not like trained law enforcement. If part of their role is to de-escalate situations, or they know they're dealing with some uh, aggressive employees, or frankly, people that may have uh, personality disorders or mental health problems, but they're not really being managed effectively, and they feel like they're they're out of their league in terms of doing something about that. Uh, again, uh, you hit a lot of points. Um, yes, no, no one, no one is dismissing that. The reality is there are genuine incidents of people having some men- mental health issues. But I will not sit here in my office today and, and cast a blanket accusation that the problems come from mental health alone. Um, right. But I will not also dismiss that there are ideologies and, and attitudes within the within the workplace that are combustible, that are are variable lightning rods. And you know what they are. People who are extremists in their views have a potential uh, take on life, and they don't want anybody to violate their particular opinions or views. Those are the volatile ones that will create problems for you. They might be extreme in their behavior. They might have some sociopathic uh, fringes and touches to their attitudes. But um, there still has to be a policy in place that says, Supervisor X, you're responsible for this employee, you're responsible for this, and that every together we collaborate in making sure that whatever we see here or is reported is addressed. But to make the excuse that I'm not law enforcement, I don't have security background, I don't have any experience in what Felix Nader was talking about, doesn't excuse you from having a comprehensive approach, and I don't mean complicated, a comprehensive approach that goes from A to Z. A, you do this, B, you do this. See you do this. You can't use the excuse that because I don't have the mitigation skills or I don't have an understanding and appreciation for how to defuse situations that I then should not get involved. You can get involved to elicit what happened, 
what transpired, who were the witnesses, and then report it to the next level so that the next level can be aware of a potential escalation factors that need to be addressed. And then they can then decide to bring in the experts to help either with mitigation or with uh, risk minim- minimization strategies and techniques. So there is no... Well, feel it. Oh, I'm sorry. What about on a personal level, an employee who who um, possibly has come up against another employee with an aggressive behavior or threatened towards them? If the, if the company they're working for doesn't necessarily have a policy in place, do you have any helpful hints, so to speak, for those employees who may be experiencing this? Um, so if I understand it correctly... Uh, this is a, a workplace with, say, ten or more employees. Well, yeah, I guess it. You know, just hypothetically, it could uh, hypothetically? be. Hypothetically, okay. Yeah. That would be that. That would be the extreme because even if they didn't have a workplace violence prevention policy, I'm hoping that there's misconduct policies. I'm hoping that there's harassment policies because they also all fall in under the umbrella of workplace violence prevention. So at least I hope that there's something in place that will protect that employer from a civil liability suit that may ensue as a result of this personal situation that started from the workplace, that extended beyond the workplace, and hopefully that there's no injuries, but if there's a serious injury or even a fatality and both were employees, the organization needs to be mindful that they conceivably could be held civilly responsible for any serious injuries and or the fatality if the incident that caused the escalation started in the workplace. What so about the what about the employee personally? Um let's just say hypothetically I feel a threat or I feel um someone is acting aggressively towards me. Yes. What do I personally what can I do? What how should I handle that situation? You don't want to necessarily get back up in that person's face. Um no. are there are there some steps to take to de escalate the situation before it gets into something more serious? I, I think there are many steps that we could take, but let's just address three. Uh the most important is is to tell the person how he makes you feel, how she makes you feel. That's number one. Number two, and cease and desist and then document that as part of the cease and desistment. And then go to the supervisor or the employer and tell the employer what's transpiring. If you feel if you feel that neither the employer is paying attention to you or you feel threatened and there's a continuation of that behavior and it escalates to a point of the imminent bodily harm, then you can then go to the police department and file a police report with the local police department. Uh, you know what happens in some cases, depending upon the serious nature of the of the complaint, it'll get attention, and of course, in some cases, it may never get attention. So those three things uh, are well within your purview to do, but you've got to say something, and you've got to show interest in wanting to correct the situation. Don't be don't internalize the fear and do nothing because that's where you get that bully mentality from. Once they notice that you're afraid of them and you do nothing, they're going to continue making you the victim of their uh, aggression. Right. Isn't it true that maybe a lot of people with that aggressive person, if if you even say anything to them, like, this is how I feel, that they may feel like you're going to inflame the situation and that's where they they really don't do anything? They just keep silent? Yes. They're fearful of the retribution directly from the person that is victimizing them, and they're also fearful of what the workplace may do to them for getting involved or reporting it, so they internalize it. 
Right, and especially with those situations where you're not, say you're not an equivalent employee, you're on the same level. I mean, let's face it, there's been supervisors that harass people, whether it's sexual harassment or whatever, and because of the the nature of the hierarchy, oh, my God, well, I can't say anything because this person is my supervisor and I'll lose my job, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that's that's the realm in which bullying exists. That's it. That's the realm in which fear to report exists. Is it the victim, employee, whether it's a coworker upon coworker or supervisor on a co- on an employee, fears that if they take it to the next level, they'll be exposed, they'll be ridiculed, they'll be humiliated, they'll be taunted, and they'll be the victim. Like last week, I did a blog, and I the and the blog of it was. What what is your understanding of workplace violence prevention? And as soon as that blog hit the air, I get a phone call from someone out of Long Island, and she says to me, "That's me." And I and I says, "What do you mean?" She says, "My last name is C O X." You know, I says, "Okay." And uh, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that, but uh, she became the victim of this ongoing uh, taunting and harassment. And when she told the uh, you know the people around that were taunting and harassing her to stop, it only got worse. She reported to her supervisor, nothing was done. She takes it into HR, and lo and behold, she discovers that HR has an impression of her from the workforce that suggests that she is the troublemaker. Oh. Um, it escalates, it escalates, it escalates. It goes into the boss. Uh, the boss hears a different version from HR, and eventually she's um, separated from the organization. So, you know, these things happen. And whether you're aggressive and are willing to document it and report it, you still could become the victim depending upon those relationships in the workplace that are going to be aligned against you. Right. Well, let me ask you this. A couple things come to mind. When you're just saying that, you know, in going through sort of the hierarchy in in an organization, typically whoever it is on, on, on the top of the heap gets the version from HR. And they Correct. typically do not know what's going on, you know, at, at the grassroots level. Why is it that everything has to be filtered up through HR and the people that are really involved in the nitty-gritty of the situation don't get a voice? Interesting question. In the organizational design, that's what HR is supposed to do. HR is the filter. Uh, I would say the ethical filter of the labor relations, employee labor relations uh expectations in the workplace. So you, you got to have that f- figure in those organizations that, that employ such an individual. But let's say, absent to having an HR director, so to speak, it's a supervisor's responsibility to resolve the employee issues. It's the supervisor's responsibility to clear the air and provide some relief when an employee has an issue. It's the supervisor's managers to support that supervisor. But what happens if you look at it in terms of the, pulling back the, the uh, onion skin and peeling back and looking at the core reasons for the problem is historically nobody has done anything. And if we suddenly do something now, how much risk are we exposing ourselves to? Is there a possibility that this one time we're doing it right may all of a sudden bring to bear discussions about why we didn't handle that previous situation the same way? So they just keep on doing what what Einstein said, the same thing over and over, and expecting the same results or different right. results. Well, well, sounds like you have an uphill battle. 
uh, in a lot of these situations, unfortunately. Yeah. But another thing that, that comes to mind, and I, I really don't want to sound as if I'm denigrating this profession, but a lot of times some people just, just go and hire a security guard from, you know, look in the yellow pages or whatever it is. And, you know, I have heard or known that there are a lot of, you know, sometimes, and and this is not to make a blanket statement for all security guards, but sometimes security guards have been low-level criminals and they can get the job as a security person. Just because you hire a, a, a contracted security guard, do, do, is that putting a Band-Aid on a situation? Absolutely. One security guard can't do, I, I would say, can't do nothing. Come on. Okay. Gotta, you have to change that whole presentation of your intent. It's a cultural-driven desire to improve upon the workplace security nature of it. As I said to a client several years ago, and this we were tele, televising uh, through satellites around the world to these various locations, a training program designed to minimize the threat from a a, a guy who goes postal, you know, someone who comes into the workplace. They call him today an actor shooter. I call him a hostile intruder. And we were doing a scenario, and somebody from J- the Japan office says, Mr. Nader, I want a security guard present here, and and, uh, and Virginia won't give us the security guard. So I said, um, by coincidence, we have a police officer that's part of the local police uh, who's part of this program, let me show you what would happen if I decided to come in one day and go postal. That one lone security guard with that one lone gun, he is going to lose his gun because I'm going to walk behind him, knock him over his head, take the gun. Now I have two guns. Mm. So, so it's a false sense of security when you think right. that a uniform presence is going to make a difference. A uniform presence will only make a difference when the culture from the top down says we're committed and we're going to invest in a safe and secure workplace where everybody is treated with dignity and respect. And those who violate it, whether it's a low-level employee-employee situation or a high-level manager on another employee, are going to be treated the same way. Then and only then do you instill a sense of cultural consistency. That one long guard security guard assignment is just a finger in the dike of a real big problem on the other side of the dike wall. But is there a way, if that's if that's your present structure, is there a way to make that person the most effective that they can be? Or are you Absolutely. saying Absolutely. they need to be replaced with another system entirely? Well, no. If you have to go out and hire a security officer, a security guard, because the need mandates it, then hire the best company you could possibly hire that understands the customer service end of security operations. You know, hire a security officer whose presence and presentations and knowledge of workplace violence prevention is consistent with the policies of the organization and, and it integrates with the organization's policies. Don't mm-hmm. hire that, that guy with the gun who's going to come in here to be self-impressed with his own presentation, forgetting about the image he's supposed to be creating and the relationship he's supposed to be creating. If You, you can create a lone security officer to be very effective if they're properly trained and they come from the right companies who properly train those security officers. And I'm sorry, I'm going to say, oftentimes companies only want a Band-Aid, so they don't hire right. the, the top-notch security firms that can deploy a one, uh, one-armed security officer that projects a professional presentation. Mm. Go ahead, Delilah. Yeah. Okay. Would you agree that in, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, when a company hires a security 
guard or, or a number of security guards. It's to guard their products or their assets. And it's not necessarily to guard their people and their employees and to keep the peace, so to speak, or to keep them out of danger. It's more a, a, a culture of protecting your assets rather than your people, Probably. which should be your most valuable assets. I, I agree. I, I agree, Delilah. That's a very, very good point. Uh, about seven years ago, I was hired to uh, work with the Children's Museum in, in Queens, New York, and this security director and the vice president of facilities, they were visionaries. They said, we want to hire and train security officers that are, guess what, people and customer service friendly. Isn't that amazing? So we would, even though I had never done this before, they went into my background and said, but you can do it. We want you to put together a security customer service oriented, oriented program that helps our people recognize the value they bring, but how they must integrate that value into the services that we deliver in engaging the workforce and engaging with our customers and clients. You, once you hire a security officer under the pretense that your primary job is to manage the physical security aspects of it, you're forgetting that the people are part of that physical security. Mm-hmm. And so the two have to go hand in hand. A nice greeting, a nice salutation, engaging conversation, decency and respectfulness in the way you approach one another as opposed to being consumed with your presentation will go a long way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely imperative, like what, what you're talking. And these are some things that people people just don't think about. A um, couple of things. I do want to get into uh, a, a large example uh, in terms of a high-profile shooting in, in just a minute, like perhaps the Navy Yard shooting, uh, shooting we discussed. But was 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 also was also wondering um, with, with respect to if you are an employee and you are a victim of crime, such as myself, what are some special things that should be taken into consideration? both personally from the crime victim standpoint and from the employee, uh, from the employer standpoint. I, I just don't think they get it um, if they have people who have experienced violent crime in their work setting that we are more vulnerable. We are hypersensitive to certain things, and they just kind of lump us all together. Uh, what what should they be considering from the employer standpoint? If you have people, I use myself in, as an example, a homicide survivor, as an employee. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think thoughtful policies that include allowing employees to avail themselves of the employee assistance program, or outside consultation of their of their of their choice and selection, will go a long way towards resolving hopefully long-range issues that can be mitigated now through the proper care and attention. Conveying that to the victims of crime in the workplace is, is incredibly important because you're sending out a positive message in a, in a positive tone that you care about your employees. Advising supervisors who supervise victims of crime to be a little bit more sensitive and in tune with the person's traumatic experience so that there isn't a disconnect between the victimization and the expectations of their supervisor, so it goes hand in hand. Understanding that flexibility as a supervisor in, this, in these examples is important so that when an employee comes to you on a certain day feeling a certain way, that there isn't a prejudgment 
and there is a willingness to help that employee through the personal moments that they're experiencing by allowing him or her some time aside, maybe some early early dismissal from work, or maybe even some late arrival to work. There has to be a integration and a collaboration from the top to the bottom on all possible things that we can come up with to reduce the stress after a person is a victim of crime, either as a result of the workplace relationship or as a result of just being a human being in society and becomes a victim of, of a crime. We have to be sensitive to those of us that are victims because guess what? We're traumatized, and guess what? Our efficiency and our ability to pay attention to things are impaired until we can overcome that. And if nobody helps us overcome, we're always going to be consumed in what will happen again and when will it happen again. Right. And, you know, too often crime victims in these settings have to be the squeaky wheel, and it shouldn't be that way. And then, you know, there's the whole thing about confidentiality. And so I just think it it gets all muddled. And uh, for me, I'm, you know, I'm an open person with regard to these types of matters because I think it's important for people to know. I'm always educating people. That's my ulterior motive. I'm not so concerned about my privacy with that or else I wouldn't be in this business, you know. I'm using my situation to try to help others. So I'm just hoping that people listening will heed this, you know. Really, well, it's very important. Um, with with regard to, like, Donna, uh, on that, Donna, on that point, you know, on that yes. point, uh, Delilah's yes. familiar with this. When Susan was with us, uh, that was the biggest challenge she had, is, is that organizations were trying to hide behind privacy and confidentiality when it came to victimization. It's all well and good. But once you get the okay of the victim, you should not hide behind privacy and confidentiality. You should do everything in your power once that victim gives you the okay to protect me and to employ your resources to protect me, that you should want to do whatever you can within the law to do whatever you can to minimize further risk and to de-escalate situations. And you can do this. When I was a postal inspector, and I do that now in my client situations, when I was a postal inspector, the, the postmaster general and the chief inspector decided that the best way to address the problem of, of workplace violence was to create these uh, threat assessment teams, crisis management teams throughout the organization, and as an inspector was assigned to these teams. I, they knew that I was sharing confidential stuff, but guess what? I deputized everybody in that room to understand that if we're going to be effective, we have to share a common objective. And the common objective is stop this stuff from escalating. And the way we stop it is by all of us discussing, having input, sharing in the outcome, and having solutions that are real as opposed to band-aids. So I just throw it out there because, yeah, you have to protect the innocent, but you also have to have be creative and resourceful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to get mired down in all this bureaucracy that you have to deal with. And you can't lose sight of the fact that you're dealing with human beings, you know? Yes, that's right. And I I don't say, you know, Donna, and I don't say that Felix Nader that comes into your company is going to say everything that you want to hear. What I want to say is hear me out and do what you need to do, Mm -hmm. but start doing something. Right. That you got to you got to crawl before you can walk and, and absolutely yeah, I, right and I think that's that is that is the uh, situation here. But um, can we possibly get into we we have we have a see it's forty seven we we have about fifteen minutes or so or seventeen minutes left of the show just to let you know. Are you kidding and, me? Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, you know <laughs> that's that's an invitation. We need to have you back. Okay? Oh boy. 
on another time because there's so many issues to be discussed here. But um, as an example, I know we had brought up the Navy Yard shooting, and if we want to kind of touch on the aftermath of some of these events to give oh people sort of a full menu of what you do, and please, mm-hmm. why don't you tell people right now, because I don't want to run out of time, how could they contact you in terms of a, a, as a resource so that we get this in for the full hour? Well, you're speaking, how can I help? Yeah, if okay. people would like to contact you. Okay, can okay. You give that well, to us? Take take my toll free number. It's the best. Eight seven seven eight seven seven eight two five value one zero one eight seven seven eight two five eight one zero one is my toll free and it follows me whether I'm in New York, North Carolina, or on my cell phone. Best okay. way. Or go to my website and and learn a little bit more about me and see if you trust me, like me. Uh, www dot dot com on the home page. N a t e r. Yes, n a t e r associates.com and if you go to the home page on my website there's a video you know that tries to build a rapport and establish a relationship with you so if you like me you like me if you don't like me you know move on to the next person that considers themselves the expert yeah i well i like that attitude that that's great and i i would encourage all of the listeners to do this because everyone works in a workplace and and all workplaces need improvement you know so well, yeah we really need- what we need is is uh, is people who are critical thinkers who are not going to espouse the traditional way of doing things. We're talking about a human life. It, nothing disgusts me more when I go to a workplace violence seminar or a workshop or a presentation and they open up with statistics. You know the only statistic I care about is that one, that one person who's a victim. Be, because if you cared about your own workplace and your own organization, you wouldn't be worried about what happened to the other 465 or 377 or 412 that's been reported in previous years. You'd be worried about what are you doing as an organization that gives you credibility and trust in the hearts and minds of your workforce. That's what I would be focusing on, not what compliance folks are saying are the ratios and the risk factors. What are we as CEOs and senior managers doing to instill a sense of trust and confidence in our workforce? That's the only number I'm concerned about, that one. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. We're on the same page there. Um, is, is, are there people who have, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are organizations that you have worked with, and as a result of their workplace violence, uh, you know, uh, horrendous event have really made a 180 degree turnaround and you might use them as a as a model example you know my wife says i don't do this enough but since you asked the question i'm going to do it right now let me tell you something donna i am here to say unequivocally that every relationship with every client that i have had has been has provided me living proof and example of what their devotion can generate when they're sincere about implementing our strategies, ours, mine, and their strategies. And I can't mention names, but I'll give you two. A national company brought me in to train their directors on how to handle uh, high-profile situations. As I do in all cases, I would call up 30 days later asking, how did I do? Not how well was it received, but how did I do in delivering uh, the training so that it met your, your expectations? On one occasion, I received two examples. There was a termination and the employee who was a caustic, hard-to-get-along-with employee because they followed my strategies over time, the employee stood up and said, you know what, if I had listened to the advice you were giving me all along, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. 
extended the hand, shook the hand, and left. On the other example of the same people who went to my training program, the director tells the HR director that just this morning she had a very, very difficult encounter with an employee that was less than um, obliging, and it went very, very well because she used positive language, not negative language, positive language. And a recent client here in the Carolinas over lunch the other day says to me, we have our own workplace violence prevention system. I mean, example, we want to show you, uh, Mr. Nader. And it all came about as a result of you helping us understand how to be proactive. Wow. But you have That's to, powerful. You yeah. have, no, Donna, you have to, Delilah, you have to get away from people who pull down data and are regurgitating statistics. You want to know what is going to be in that toolkit when you leave, Mr. Nader, that can help me manage my own situation long after you're gone. That's what you want to, to have in that toolkit. So segue over to this. So on September 16, 2013, when Aaron Alexis decided that he was going to go postal on that day at the Washington Naval Yard in, in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. he just didn't wake up that morning and said, I am angry at the way I've been treated. He had envisioned retaliation on the way he was treated. He had followed his, uh, his intuition on how best to enter the facility because he has known that there are gaps in their security. So he knew where the weak points were, and that's how he was able to gain access. When I stood up and I addressed the group in Virginia and I said to the group, mark my words, when they do their investigation, they're going to find huge gaps in their ability to manage identification systems for their contractors because that's the only way that this man could have uh, gotten access to a facility after he had been separated and terminated from employment. Mm-hmm. So in terms of critical thinking, you know, we have to sit back and assess and evaluate all these incidents and say, what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? Why didn't we know it was going wrong? Who was involved when it was going wrong? And what were the contributing factors? We'll never really know, in Aaron Alexis' case, what were the contributing factors. But me being an armchair analyst, I can hazard a guess on many contributing factors that I won't for the benefit of time here. But I will say to you that when organizations are not proactive, when organizations try to present a a story of being cool, calm, and collected to the media, there is always somebody who knows the facts, and the media will find that person who knows the facts and tell it like it is. So my implorement to all senior officers of any organization, private and government, who are listening to me is be proactive. Is If you have an issue, an issue or a situation that comes to your attention, address it proactively and hold those people below you responsible who are irresponsible because you've got to work this piece called workplace violence prevention from the insidious experiences of name-calling and harassment to the day when someone says, you fired me? because I retaliated and you did nothing and finally this day I decided to take the law into my own hands and you give no consideration to my emotional outburst but instead because your silly zero tolerance policy says you have to treat me the same way you treated the next guy I'm out of here okay you're going to you're going to see me in a couple of years when I can't cope anymore and when I have no ability to sustain myself and when my wife left me and my kids don't talk to me and my bank account is drained you'll see me then because you know what you're going to pay for this that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be preparing for the when and not for the if, because if you prepare for the when, your program is so aggressive that every situation gets resolved ex- expeditiously. 
Every employee complaint gets handled expeditiously. Every situation that rises to a level of concern gets resolved immediately as opposed to tomorrow when it's when it's convenient for you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Wow, so the Naval, yeah. You know, so yeah. the Naval Yard incident to me leaves you with one, one more thought I want to share with you. Sure. So we're talking about preparing these people for this active shooter situation where people have to know what to do and it's critically important, but that's a reaction to a failed prevention program. Do you know how many hours that those employees spent at the uh, RFK Stadium, guess how many hours they spent away from their loved ones, from their children, from people who needed and were dependent on their home care, how many hours they spent away from their own personal medication because no one told them how to prepare a family support plan for an emergency like that, whether it be weather, whether it be a homicidal incident. Guess how many hours? 13 hours. 13 hours, wow. Away from your loved ones, from your medication, Mm -hmm. from those, and your mind is running a mile a minute. And if you had just been prepared for an event like that, what are are your personal responsibilities, Mr. Nader? My personal responsibilities is to have a go bag around me all the time with my keys, my driver's license, my house keys, my office keys, my identification, and my medication. Not at your desk. And... Try a notification uh-huh. to the family members that if anything happens, whether it's weather, whether I get involved in a car accident, know to do this. Know that mom needs this. Know that grandpa needs that. Know to pick up so-and-so from the from the uh, the baby care, baby attendant. There's a lot to this thing called workplace violence prevention and violence response that is sugar-coated because we've turned this thing into a commodity. We're selling a service as opposed to preparing people to be better contributors to the workplace, to the workplace by reducing stress, reducing threats, and increasing better relationships by treating people with dignity and respect. Yeah, you have to you have to keep the human element in mind here, like you say, versus a commodity. Um, like, um, we still have a few minutes. I have a couple other things that have come to mind. How often should you update your plan? Every year. Every, Every year or following an incident, you should go back and revisit what, what, what worked well, and what mm-hmm. didn't, and uh, revise it and start all over again. Every year or two, you should do a worksite-specific assessment of your particular workplace. That includes a questionnaire to employees asking them questions specific about their workplace safety and security every year. Every year, you should do some level of orientation and awareness training that promotes the policy, that helps employees stay connected to their knowledge that the workplace cares about their workplace safety and security. Yeah, because the employees that are there, boots on the ground, are the ones every day in the building. They know the weak points. So, well, um, yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. What are your feelings about having metal detectors? I know this is a hotbed issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's has anybody asked the question, what are these kids that are being involved in school lockdowns experiencing traumatically today that they're going to have to deal with tomorrow? Every time somebody comes in with a gun or a community member uh, you know, is involved in a, in a gun situation, these kids are locked into a, a classroom. I don't think anybody right. has Look began. Look at Sandy Hook. Right. You know, yeah. Sandy Hook and all the other schools. I mean, every time there's a, lot, there's a situation involving a criminal element in their community, they're locked down. But no one's doing any studies into the adverse impact that over the years this stuff's going to have. Or what are we doing to our schools and now our workplaces when we suggest that when you go to school, you're going to get killed? 
So we're going to have armed guards in the school to protect you against the uh, that. Imp- Why don't we send a better positive message that says a school is a place where it's an extension of the family, and we're going to uh, you know bridge that uh, understanding by creating an environment where it's conducive. I know it's I know it's pie in the sky, but we've got to begin somewhere. We can't take it to the workplace as we do. There are some requirements in some workplaces where you need to have that stuff because that's the way it is. Uh, if you're going to introduce it, be very mindful and thoughtful as to why it's being introduced. Uh, have a program up front that introduces the need for the, for the technology so that employees buy in. Stop pushing technology down the throats of employees without getting a buy-in or an understanding of the value to be derived. Bring in the workforce when you think of deploying technology. You don't have to divulge the, all of the aspects of its uh, intended uh, deployment, but you can certainly inform employees on the value of the technology and explain why it's needed. Make it palatable so it's become right. a collaborative issue. Well, it, you know, you've given us many, many things to uh, think about, and certainly uh, they're out of the box, and that's the kind of thing we like. It's been very valuable information, and I, I give you an open invitation if you'd like to come back and discuss more. We'd love to have you. So with that said, I guess we're going to close out this edition of Shattered Life. Delilah, would you like to have a final parting comment? I just think this show has had, I mean, it's just been an hour packed with information. Felix and Natter Associates just, they just do a fantastic job. They know their stuff and uh, highly recommended. Thanks so much, Felix, for being on with us. Thank you, Delilah. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Felix. And yes, keep in touch with us. So, everyone, um, please do stay tuned uh, next Saturday for uh, the next edition of Shattered Lives and and go to DonnaGore.com and ImaginePublicity.com and we'll see you on the radio next week. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.